Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were, per- while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, folks, this this is it. This is what it's all about, Easter. It's the day. The the only reason that any of you are here in this room this morning, uh, not just because someone made you come, but is because of Easter, what Luke tells us about what happened early, at, at early dawn on the first day of the week. Easter is the only reason there are any Christians. Easter is the only reason there is any such thing called Christianity. Easter is the only reason that the Jewish Sabbath became Christian Sunday. Easter is central to the Christian faith, and not because it's, you know, one weird trick uh, that God did one time uh, to one person to, to raise him from the dead. When it comes to raising people to life, uh, you know, if you read through the Gospels, it's kind of a been there, done that type of a thing. We, we, we've seen Jesus um, raise Lazarus. We've seen him uh, uh, raise the widow's uh, son. We, we've seen Jairus's daughter raise again. Now, what happened on Easter Sunday is in some way categorically different than what came before that transcends a mere resuscitation of a corpse. See, resurrection is beyond resuscitation. Resurrection is what happens when you can no longer die. Resurrection is what happens when death has been defeated. And the Easter message is not just that Jesus' tomb was empty that first Easter Sunday morning, but that is empty always and for all time. There will never be a body in that tomb again. And the Easter message given to the women is the gospel in in seven English words. It's five in Greek, but who's counting? He is not here. He is risen. Now, we who have been reared in in the church and and raised in... uh, what some, well, I forget what author called, but uh, in talking about the American South, but I think it, a, 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 it applies broadly to America in a Christ-haunted culture, if not a Christian culture. We need to be reminded of the prevailing mood that we see on that first Easter. Because when we think of, of Easter, I mean, it's this triumphant day. It's, it's when we can sing Alleluia again in the church. And for those of you raised in, in, in a Lutheran or a Catholic tradition, especially the Lutherans, though, they're very strict on no alleluias from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday. And so that's why we get all of our alleluias out on Easter Sunday morning. It's triumphant. It's celebratory. I love that about Easter. 
We're sort of spiking the football on Easter Sunday. But that's not what the first Easter was, was about at all. There was not celebration so much as surprise. There wasn't rejoicing so much as there was fear. There wasn't clarity about what all this meant so much as there was confusion about what was happening. That's because no one expected it. Not the women who came bearing spices. Not the disciples who who were cowering behind locked doors. Not the uh, Jewish authorities. Not the Romans. Nobody. Now it's a, uh, I'm not going to be breaking any news here. Uh, It's a well-established fact Um, known throughout history, testified to by universal human experience, that dead people stay dead. Even good people, even the best people, even people who have been unjustly killed. Now, it's often been said, and and, and there's, I think, more than a degree of truth to this, but that the disciples, they didn't believe this message about the empty tune, uh, because it came from women. And so they were prejudiced against them because of their sex. And, and in that day and age, in that culture, it's certainly true that um, the testimony of women was devalued because of, you know, misogyny or, or patriarchy. That, that much is, is true. But I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that if it had been a bunch of guys who brought this news of the empty tomb to the disciples instead, they would have just credulously believed it. Oh, sure, of course. Lest we forget that, that doubting Thomas, he doubted when he was told by his fellow disciples, all of whom were men, about seeing the appearance of the risen Jesus. Now, the disciples dismissed the testimony of the women because it seemed to them an idle tale. And this is a very polite way of translating a word that gets used in other contexts in antiquity to mean the insane ramblings of someone who is in the throes of a fever. It's like a fever dream is essentially what this news sounds like to the disciples uh, from these women. And so they dismissed the news of that first Easter right, as fake news. They did not receive it as good news. And Easter, it's always been a problem. It's always seemed almost too good to be true. It, it's always strained credulity. In fact, I think you could say that most post-enlightenment theology in some form or another has been a struggle to articulate how one can remain a Christian while not believing in the resurrection. And I don't think it's possible, but we can at least have sympathy with those engaged in the project. They share at least that tendency with the disciples and, and, and even at first the women on that first Easter Sunday. How can this be? There's... A great degree of irony, though, in in the question from the angel posed to the women. Why do you seek the living amongst the dead? Because to be fair to them, they were not seeking the living. They had come seeking the dead amongst the dead. They didn't understand what Jesus had told them, that, that he was going to be betrayed and handed over, that he was going to suffer, he was going to die, he was going to be crucified, and then on the third day he was going to rise again. They didn't understand that, and I think fairly, before Easter, I don't think they could have understood that. But that question, why do you seek the living amongst the dead, it's a question that's unique to Luke's account of Easter Sunday morning. And so I just want to spend some time thinking about that, and thinking about the ways that that we have a tendency to treat the living Jesus as if he were dead.
So here's just three ways how I, how I see that playing out. Now first, and most obviously, there are those who deny the reality of the resurrection. Included uh, amongst their number are, are people like the uh, former Episcopal bishop of Newark, New Jersey, a guy named John Spong, who uh, his heyday was kind of probably in the late 90s and early 2000s. And, and John Spong, he was a uh, jack, I believe, that he went by. He was kind of a darling of Bill Maher, if you remember his old program on Comedy Central, before his one uh, that's now on HBO. It was called Politically Incorrect. And so, uh, you know, John Spong would come on because here was a Christian bishop who denied basically every tenet of Orthodox Christian faith. So, and actually saw Bill Maher once at Mall of America shopping. He's a very short man, like surprisingly short, maybe, yeah, five, five, three. Very short man. That's neither here nor there. But I just was struck in seeing him. Uh, the camera adds seven or eight inches. And so here we go. So uh, Bill Maher loved Jack Spong, and, and Jack Spong wrote this book. You know, he's this Episcopal bishop, and he wrote this book. It was called Resurrection, Reality, or Myth? And it will save you a read. Myth is where he, he squarely lands. And so for those who reject the resurrection, it's, it's, it's not that they hate Jesus. It's just that he belongs to, you know, that great line of religious heroes and founders you know, he's another and yet perhaps greater Buddha or Confucius, Moses, Zoroaster, or Muhammad. And on this view, what, what rose on Easter wasn't Jesus, but, but the faith of the disciples in his message. Jesus still lives in our hearts, just as the memories of our dearly departed loved ones also live on as we keep, you know, their memories alive. And I'm sympathetic to those who take that position, who, who can't bring themselves to believe even if they want to. Even in the Easter story, such doubts and such doubters have good company. But the Easter message contradicts consigning Jesus to the past and his life solely to the hearts and the memories of his followers. He is not here. He is risen, is a statement that stubbornly refuses any attempt to turn it into a, a, a mere metaphor or to transform it into sheer spiritual symbolism. Easter instead encourages us to doubt our doubts. Luke, you know, is bold. He names names. Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of James, Joanna. He invites us to investigate this for ourselves. And he's realistic that at first how hard it can be to accept this. What a complete and total surprise it was. And yet the message remains. He is not here. He is risen. Now a second way that we can treat the living Jesus as if he belongs to uh, the realm of the dead is by treating him merely as an object of study rather than a subject for our devotion. I think this is, is what I'd call the religious temptation, or it's a temptation that as religious people we are susceptible to. We can, you know, study our Bibles. We can know the Gospels, you know, front and back. We can attend religious services and, and, and Bible studies. We, we can read commentaries and theology until our libraries and our heads are full. It's that truth, right, that we can know all about Jesus without really knowing him. We can read all about him without ever availing ourselves of the wonderful thing about Christian prayer that we can talk to him. 
we can show up to church without believing that he's actually here. But Easter refuses to let us reduce Jesus to an object and instead invites us into a relationship with him as a living subject. The great Easter refrain is not, you know, he was risen. But he is risen. He is risen indeed. The past and the present collide, inviting us into this amazing future. Now, a third way we look for the living Jesus amongst the dead is a tendency I see played out over and over again. And and it's this tendency to instrumentalize Jesus. And this is such a temptation today. We instrumentalize Jesus when we use him to just support whatever it is we already believe or we're going to do. We make Jesus sort of a prop or a tool within our existing ideological frameworks. So, you know, if we consider ourselves a a progressive person, you you know what? Jesus was the best progressive that there ever was. And of course, the converse is true. If, 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 you know, we're a conservative, Jesus would have been one too. I see this, you know, all the time in ways great and small. People using Jesus and bringing him in as part of this endless ideological tit-for-tat that people do. And I don't know if it's more disheartening or just disgusting to see him treated in this way because it doesn't increase love or compassion or understanding. I think it's just another way that, that, that negative partisanship has just poisoned everything we see around us. It's poisoned our brains. It's poisoned our relationships. It's poisoned our religion. And Easter affirms that Jesus is alive, that he is both Lord and Christ. And because of that, you know, we, 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 we don't um, bring Jesus into our agenda. He uses us for his. And so when it comes to Easter, we, we got to hear a lot more about the king and his kingdom and a lot less talk about our earthly kings and rulers and leaders and, and whatever program or project they want to bring us along into. And so if that's how we treat the, the living Jesus as dead, the question then is, well, how should we treat him? Because that's the negative. Don't do this. But how then shall we live? What should we do? And the key to answering that is seen here in the sermon. And it's in this phrase that occurs twice. Uh, slightly different, but very similar as well. And it's this. This is what the angel says, and then Luke tells us what the women did. So the angel says to the women, you know, about Jesus, remember how he told you. And then later it says, they remembered his words. And so I want to say that what should we do? How do we, how do we treat the living Jesus as alive is, is in this act of, of remembering the words of Jesus. That's what transforms us. Because it was remembering these words that, that transformed these women from frightened and confused to, to these bold apostles to the apostles. They're really the first evangelists. They're the first ones to go out and share this, this Easter message. He is not here. He is risen. And, and, and in effect, the, these women, they were the founders of the church because the foundation of the church is Jesus' living word. It's that word that, that creates and constitutes the church every time we gather because we were remembering what Jesus said in, in, in word and in sacrament, in scripture and in song and in prayer. And so our worship each and every Lord's Day, it's centered on this remembering. I mean, right on the, the communion table there, it says, do this in remembrance of me. 
Each and every Lord's Day, we are remembering Jesus' word because it's through remembering his word that Christ is present and active in our midst. It's through his word that he continues to accomplish his work. And what we've got to understand, you know, for us, that word remember or remembrance, the way we use it, it's all about looking backwards. And, and, and so when we remember something, we're recalling information or we're recalling something about a relationship or, or a person. But in the Bible, uh, the meaning of remembrance, it's, it's much broader and, and it's much deeper than that as well. To remember in Scripture is not just a call to mind, but, but it's a call to action based on your, your pre-existing commitments. And so, for example, in the Old Testament, uh, the people of God will cry out, Lord, remember your covenant. Remember the covenant you made with, your, made with your people Israel. And of course, they're not saying, God, you may have forgotten this commitment that you made, so could you please get that information back in your mind? No. It's saying, God, act in accordance with your commitments and your character. And, and so for us, of course, we're not God. We're human beings. So remembering for us can include recalling information that has gone out of our consciousness or, or that we've neglected. But it also includes this, this calling to mind to be called to action. And so church is really our collective remembering of Jesus's words through which the living Jesus acts in us through his living word. Thus, each and every Sunday, we are, we gather on the Lord's day, we are reliving the experience of these women on that first Easter Sunday, but with one slight modification to what they were told, but, but, but very important. Because, you know, the message to them was, you know, he is not here, empty tomb. He is not here. He is risen. But now the, the risen Jesus is also our ascended Lord who, who is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And so we say he is here because he is risen. And that way, Easter, it's not just about, you know, the, the there and then. It's very, very much so about, about the here and now as well. And when I think about, okay, the here and now and the meaning of Easter here and now, and, and trying in some way to speak to, you know, where we've been over the course of this past year, from Easter 2020 to Easter 2021, what a year it's been. And I'll never forget, last Easter, you know, we, we pulled off this Easter service. It was, it was crazy. You know, Amy and I were talking about this. We were just exhausted, just spent, because, you know, we, we had spent the last, you know, two, three weeks, all of us, just in this kind of crisis mode. And if you remember last year, the weather was so awful on Easter. It snowed. It was depressing. And I remember the food even tasted bad, and I made this really good steak tri-tip. It tasted horrible. I just remember it was like ashes in my mouth. And it was, I cooked it well. It was just it was just the day. There was something about it, something so foul about that Easter day for some reason. And I think of what we've lived through over the course of these past 12 months, right? We've been dealing with this pandemic. We had, you know, in our own city, uh, what happened to George Floyd in the aftermath. And then we had this past election season, which we always look forward to. You know, they always seem worse than the last one sometimes. And, you know, it, it, culminating with what happened at the Capitol. And so there's just so much craziness this happened last year. So, so many reasons to be disappointed, so many reasons to be angry, you know, so many reasons to be frustrated. And now it seems like there's hope on the horizon. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. And so when I think about the meaning of Easter this year, though, you know, I was thinking in terms of these, you know, big themes and these broad terms, actually something that struck me, and, and, and I read it last month, is an opinion piece in the Star Tribune. It was quite affecting, and I just, because it spoke so much to 
the real lived reality of death that some people have and, and how Easter has to come to bear on our experience. And so it was written, this uh, op-ed was written by a, a young man named Marcus Hunter. And he identifies himself as a black teenager who lives in Minneapolis. And the arresting title of this opinion piece was, I live in a cemetery called North Minneapolis. So here we are. We're, 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 someone's talking about graves. And here we are on Easter. And so here's just some of what he says, just a sampling of what he says. But he says, I began the walk home from my daily workout on a Tuesday evening. I stepped outside to the deafening sirens of a police car and a paramedic's vehicle racing down the street just past me. And as I walked down the street, I glanced to my right to see white and green balloons tied around the midsection of a trunk of a tree. Below the balloons, flowers and candles rested at the base of a tree. I mean, can't we just picture that? Can't we just see that? And the fact of the matter is, that's not something I really see in my neighborhood in southwest Minneapolis. But here's what he says. He says, I had seen countless scenes like this one displayed on the news. Most often, someone was pronounced dead. The people who seemed to be the man's family members stood on the steps of their home in shock. They were gazing upon the scene and attempting to comfort each other. The misery on their faces filled my heart with sorrow as I hurried past the scene, now desperate to get home. I walked the eight houses home and locked the door. I thought, not again. And I think that's something that we can often overlook and miss too. That when someone dies, the trauma and the pain that that leaves behind, we neglect and ignore it. But here's what he says. I was angry and confused. Ten minutes was potentially the only thing that had prevented my own death. Later, as I walked down the street, I saw another tree assigned to a newly lost life at the hands of our community. Many Northside trees bear the names of victims of gun violence. Those names include my own father's. His blood also ran through the streets in North Minneapolis. He was shot, robbed, and killed. His body was left lifelessly slumped over the steering wheel of his car. Now he has his own tree. As a black teenage male, I no longer feel safe in my community. After the killing of George Floyd and the reduction of the Minneapolis Police Department, there has been uncontrollable crime in the city. Bullets fly through the streets and into cars and walls. Constant gunfire by day and night through heat and cold. It seems there is no one to turn to for safety. Feels like my death is already written on the sidewalks here, as if I have an hourglass above my head, monitoring the time left before my life is taken. It seems as if all hope is lost. If I remain living here, it may cost me my life. In a cemetery, there are people who died of old age and disease. In North Minneapolis, the tombstones I see are for people just like me, young, black, and male. When I look at a tree, I can imagine my name and a picture of my face on it with balloons. Below the balloons, flowers and candles rest at the base of the tree. Visualize yourself across from a cemetery. Imagine how you would feel every morning walking down the street and looking at fresh graves increasing weekly. And perhaps the best understatement of all time, it is not fun. It's hard to think that you are unsafe in the place you call home. I fear that I will be another news story, another body bagged, another statistic. I fear that I will have a tree with my name on it. Now I read that and I think, what does the Easter message mean today? If not that, that as a kingdom person, if as kingdom people, if those who worship a crucified Savior who suffered the very depths of human degradation and deprivation and suffering. 
who is also a risen Savior, who has defeated the power of death. You know, what does the Easter message mean if not that we have a, a role to play, some role to play, in turning what this young man rightly sees as a cemetery into a place where he can live? Does the gospel not compel us to seek that? Especially the gospel of Luke, which is all about this reversal, about God's heart for the people whom society has, has, has consigned to the bottom of the social order. Does the Easter message not mean that the risen Christ, who is Lord of life, wants us to speak what it says in the book of Jeremiah, where God admonishes his people to seek the peace of the city into which I have sent you, to offer hope to the hopeless and life to those who live in the shadow of death. And so for me, Easter this year means I cannot accept allowing my fellow citizens to live in a cemetery. I cannot accept giving death the last word in this way because death is the enemy of life. It's the enemy of Jesus. And Easter means that death has been defeated. He is not here. He is risen. Death is dead. Now, of course, of course, as Christian people, we cannot vanquish the reality of death until our Lord comes again, but we can do everything in our power to, to banish the stench and the sting and the power and prevalence of senseless death from our community in Jesus' name. Because wherever in our world we have allowed systems or structures or institutions or practices or organizations or slogans or ideologies to emerge and prevail that are dedicated knowingly or not, to, to just perpetuating the power of death over us, we are engaging in tomb building. And Jesus is not in the tomb building business. He's in the tomb emptying business. He's in the life business. He's in the flourishing business. He's in the hope business. He's in the joy business. And so and his as his followers, we, we, we need to be reminded today that, that, that Easter means that we're in that business too. And it's our business until people like Marcus are able to say, I, I don't live in a cemetery. I live in a garden. That's the Lord's work. And we're not engaging with this on our own. God's Spirit is alive and active in this world and been <laughs> doing this work, this resurrection work since that first Easter. And we have the Lord's power with us, and we have his word with us, and the Spirit is loose in the world, and, and so we get to join the Spirit in that work. If only we will get out there and follow him. And so I admonish you uh, this Easter Sunday morning, brothers and sisters, to remember that. And, and remember all of, of the manifold and amazing implications of that simple statement. He is not here. He is risen and that our Lord is not amongst the dead, but, but, but we seek him in the land of the living. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.